You're listening to the EFC Podcast. What exactly makes a church flourish? And what does that mean anyway? Especially in today's Canada when so many churches are struggling to stay alive. Dr. Joel Thiessen studies religion and culture in Canada. He is professor of sociology and director of the Flourishing Congregations Institute at Ambrose University in Calgary. Joel joins us today for a conversation about what flourishing means when we're talking about Canadian churches. My name is Karen Stiller. Welcome, Joel. Great. Thanks, Karen. Great to be here. Okay, so what is a flourishing congregation and how do you know when you've found one? Uh, The million dollar question. Uh, I mean, this is a question that uh, when we started out in our research, really we wanted to go to church leaders and denominational leaders to ask them this question. And, you know, there's lots of literature out there on healthy churches and thriving churches and so forth. And really we put this question to church leaders uh, and asked them, you know, what do you think characterizes a flourishing congregation? And I think, and I'll share some things in a moment, but you find that there's a lot of variation in how people answer that question. And so the first way I would answer your question is there's probably no uniform answer of this is a flourishing congregation and a congregation that flourishes is flourishing in all of these different areas. That There's a lot of variation based on uh, theological tradition of how they would evaluate uh, what constitutes flourishing. So uh, here's how we've talked about flourishing. Here's how we think about it. Um, we, we talk about three overarching categories. Uh, we talk about organizational ethos. Uh, there's certain things within organizational life uh, that church leaders have told us contributes to flourishing. So these would include a clear self-identity, uh, a clear sense of who they are, where they've come from, and where they're going. Uh, leadership, all kinds of things related to uh, leadership development, uh, developing leaders within organizations, um, and so forth. Uh, innovation, willing to take risks and try new things, and then different structures and processes that help organizations to flourish so that uh, they can achieve the things that they're working towards within their their key identity and so forth. So organizationally, there's a series of things there. I would say second, uh, internal kinds of things related to a congregation. Uh, Things like discipleship. Are you discipling and making disciples within your congregation and beyond? Uh, Engaged laity. Uh, are, are your laity involved, uh, volunteering, attending regularly, and so forth? Um, do they feel connected to your, your congregation? A hospitable community, a place where you feel loved and cared for and accepted. Uh, and then the last internal piece we talk about pertains to diversity. And this was something that came up time and again with different church leaders of, uh, you know, do you find different groups within the same congregation along the lines of race and ethnicity, age, uh, socioeconomic status, and so forth. And then the last piece we talk about, and probably the one that's garnering the most traction with churches, uh, pertains to outward-focused congregations, uh, ones that are actively involved in their neighborhood, uh, where their neighborhood would notice if they were no longer uh, a part of that community, Uh, congregations that are actively involved in evangelism uh, and are training and equipping members of their congregations for that. Uh, And then last, uh, congregations who are involved in partnerships, who 
do not function solely on their own, but are partnering with a variety of other groups and organizations to advance what they think is important as part of their, their mission and ministry. So that's a long way of defining what is a flourishing congregation? How do you know it when you see it? But uh, I think we really lean into the the idea that there perhaps is not a one-size-fits-all response, that leaders think about this and, and measure it differently. And so we're, we're trying to tap into some of those things. Now, I know that you were looking at uh, Catholic, mainline, and evangelical or conservative Protestant uh, churches, and it seems to me that some of those words you used, um, you know, like evangelism— you know, diversity, discipleship, even, uh, those words can mean very different things, uh, depending on the tradition. And so how did you sort through that? Um, because churches don't always agree on these things. Yeah, yeah, no, actually, this is one of the initial insights in the project, is we were a bit surprised, maybe naively so, of how skeptical different traditions were of one another. So, for example, we would uh, interview some evangelical leaders, and they would hear that we're spending time with members of the United Church of Canada. And uh, no word of a lie, some evangelical leaders would say to us, oh, are, are those in the United Church of Canada actually Christian? Uh, or you would interview those in United Church context, and they would hear with evangelicals, and they would be concerned that we're here to proselytize everyone that we're interviewing and so forth. So it, you're right, there are some very distinctive subcultures. So how did we land on these things? In part, we look to the literature and we see what's been written and how these things have been talked about uh, in other contexts and previous studies. So you look at something like evangelism. Uh, I mean, I suppose there's different synonyms one could use for that, but the long and short of it is groups that see themselves as flourishing and one of the streams for growth pertains to reaching out to those who are not part of your faith group and bringing them into your faith group. So whether you call that evangelism, uh, some will call it outreach. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's lots of variation. I think on something like diversity, for example, uh, there are some groups that will talk about the examples I gave earlier on race and ethnicity or um, talk about uh, different age groups and so forth. And then there are others uh, more on, say, the liberal uh, end of the theological continuum who will talk about diversity in terms of uh, sexual orientation, uh, gender identification, uh, um, evidence of uh, females in leadership within church settings and so forth. So when you get into the particulars, that's where you start to see how these things perhaps are thought about and practiced differently in different settings. Okay. Now, I have this idea uh, that flourishing means growing and yeah. that flourishing means numbers. Um, help me sort through that. Is that true? Uh, well, it depends who you ask. This was, again, one of the surprising findings early on in our research when we would ask church leaders, you know, what does a flourishing congregation mean to you and look like to you? And there was this strong divide where some would be very adamant that it absolutely entailed growth, numbers, and so forth, and would give us all kinds of examples. And then there were others who were equally as adamant and strong that uh, it had nothing to do with numbers, that a church could be flourishing uh, if they were not growing numerically, or if they were a small congregation, um, perhaps in a rural setting, or even in an urban setting as well. Uh, so I think there are different perceptions of this. So as 
we look at the data as we try to analyze that. I think there's something to do with the size of a church and how they answer that question. I, I think there is a sense that uh, larger congregations tend to uh, emphasize that numbers matter and growth matters. Uh, and smaller congregations, and I don't know if this is for psychological reasons or theological reasons or, or otherwise say, you know what, um, size doesn't matter necessarily as long as people's lives are being transformed. Uh, as long as we're making a difference within our community, we may not see that evidenced in the offering plates or in our weekly attendance or in our small group gatherings and so forth. So I would say as an institute and as a research team, we're, we're still grappling with that. I mean, we're certainly presenting how leaders are talking about this, but I'm not sure that we've even definitively landed, well, if you're not growing, you're therefore not flourishing. Other than to say, if a group is diminishing in size, particularly a smaller group to begin with, uh, you do reach a point where an organization is not viable and sustainable. You don't have financial resources or human resources to sustain the organization. So it would be I would say a little misleading to say that numbers don't matter at all. I think the question is probably to what extent and degree do they matter uh, to somehow measure and capture flourishing. Yeah, because it would seem to me that would be that question of numbers would be an area where you saw a divide between, you know, the evangelical subculture, say, and maybe mainline denominations. And I know that mainline Canada also has growing congregations. I do, yeah. of course, they do. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, I think, is it not true that evangelicals are a little more perhaps, um, you know, caught up to, probably not the right term, but in the idea of a of numbers walking through the door, indicating yeah. flourishing? Yeah, they definitely have fared a bit better. So there's an excellent book that came out last year, titled Leaving Christianity, Changing Allegiances in Canada Since 1945 by Brian Clark and Stuart MacDonald. And I mean, they, they track the numerical declines in uh, mainline Protestant traditions. Uh, and they note even within the last couple of decades that you've seen some declines within conservative Protestant traditions and so forth. But by and large, you're right. Uh, on the surface, conservative Protestant traditions have um, fared better than mainline traditions for all kinds of reasons. Um, and I think the other thing that we often lose in this is the place of Catholicism in Canada. I mean, we often hear the narratives of, you know, Catholic parishes are on the decline and people are uh, no longer attending and they're dropping their affiliation. Uh, and yet on the other hand, and we know about 40% of Canadians identify as Catholic, in these traditions in urban centres like Toronto, for example, the common refrain is we can't build churches fast enough to keep up with the, uh, whether it's immigration or uh, the people who are moving into these urban centers. So there's a lot of variation within that. But certainly, I think within conservative Protestant and Catholic traditions, you might find uh, a greater resonance to some extent with the numbers argument for flourishing. Yeah. And how about uh, the leadership? Like I I assume that leaders really matter in this. What did you find out about that? Yeah, I, they, they certainly do. Um, they're one of these necessary uh, but not sufficient causes for the growth that you see in some congregational settings. So I think one of the greatest takeaways for us is uh, the value of equipping and empowering leaders. 
that if you want an organization to develop in the short and long term, it doesn't solely depend on one uh, individual. That when you can equip and empower leaders within an organization, you generate greater levels of buy-in into what this church stands for. And by extension, whether this is the intention or not, uh, people begin to give more of their time and more of their money and so forth to the organization that has a ripple effect and byproduct. So uh, that's been really essential and key for many of the leaders we've spoken to, that they've, they've talked about one of the reasons they have flourished is because people feel equipped and empowered and a high degree of ownership over um, congregational life. So I would say that's one aspect. I would say one other one, and there's lots been written about this, of the role of the uh, the charismatic leader. And um, I mean, congregations do not necessarily rise and fall upon charismatic leadership and solely that, but it does play a role. I mean, where you have leaders who can clearly articulate the vision and mission of that church's life, of a leader who can uh, clearly communicate the gospel uh, in their weekly gatherings with others. Uh, I mean, those things those things matter. And so when you look at some of the larger congregations across the country, I would say most of them have dynamic, charismatic leaders who can uh, communicate well, who can bring people around, who uh, think strategically, who understand that uh, leadership as a whole moves forward when you uh, bring together a, people of different strengths and different weaknesses. All those kinds of things are, uh, I would say, instrumental to congregational flourishing. And so um, based on what you said a moment ago, too, that that leader, that charismatic leader, if that's what one happens to have, uh, is also an equipping leader who sounds like also gives power away, so to speak, and equips leaders. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They don't hold on to leadership uh, so tightly to the point that they're unwilling to let others to to take the lead. And I would say we've seen, uh, even as some congregations have spoken of, you know, what were some of the catalysts that contributed to flourishing in your setting? Uh, Some said, you know, when we, when we, identified leaders or brought in a new leader who is willing to share that leadership with others. And and they had a red flag of sorts when they came across leaders who were unwilling to do that. That's probably the first cue that this person shouldn't be in a position of leadership who's holding too tightly to things. Mm. Okay, I'm going to ask you an unfair question. <laughs> okay, sure. I can't help myself because we're talking about flourishing and charismatic leadership. And I'm, yeah. I mean, the whole world, the whole Christian world would have said that Willow Creek was a flourishing church. And now we are dealing, I mean, I think everyone's heart is broken watching what's going on there right now with uh, Bill Hybel's resignation and so on. Um, Can you, I I don't want you to necessarily speak to that specifically, and that wouldn't be fair at all, but just in general, when a charismatic, powerful leader um, encounters such difficulty or there's such disappointment, how does a church flourish after that? Can it? Yeah, this is a a great and tough question. Um, I would say that as we spoke with leaders, some identified critical crises like this, for example, that was important for their flourishing. And to use this metaphor uh, of flourishing, sometimes things need to die within a congregation for new life to spring up. And I think 
uh, scenarios like this, though it doesn't inevitably mean a congregation will flourish coming out of that, it does create an opportunity for uh, a renewed or uh, a new self-identity, as we were talking about earlier, as, as critical to that. Um, obviously, leadership is key. Uh, so even if you have a charismatic leader who serves well and, and transitions after, say, 30 years or whatever it is, having some kind of succession plan uh, to help with those kinds of transitions are important. We heard of some leaders who uh, were developing and equipping leaders from within, not just as uh, lay ministers of sorts, but as the succession plan so that you're raising up the next lead pastor or whatever within your church, that these have been invaluable things. So I think those are some of the things that can be valuable for congregations who go through a crisis, but no doubt. I mean, these kinds of scenarios when you've had a charismatic leader, when there's been turmoil and so forth, uh, will impact a church in the short and long term. It will impact it numerically. It will impact it in terms of uh, self-image. So it will take some time to almost reinvent oneself as an organization. And um, it will look very different. And this is why when we talk about flourishing, it's not it's not measured in one single substantive way. And because an organization flourishes in one aspect of congregational life doesn't mean that it is flourishing in all other aspects. Uh, and I think these things bring that to the fore. Um, I have uh, seen, and you probably have too, where a new church plant, maybe it's a, you know, a spring off campus from another large church, mm-hmm. arrives in a town uh, with a lot of resources and um, flourishes, let, let's say. Yes. Yeah. And then other churches start to lose people because um, they often attract Christians from other churches. Can you speak to that at all? Is that something you're looking at? Like, does one flourishing church hurt another? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we we are paying attention to church plants within this project. uh, And we're in the middle of a national survey right now where this is one of a whole series of topics that we're giving attention to and want to track. But I would say in general, uh, from what I've seen of anecdotal stories across the country, uh, what I've seen a little bit of data in the United States, because we don't have a lot of solid church planting data in Canada. Uh, But more often than not, church plants that thrive and are doing well in a new setting, more often than not do so at the expense of what's happening in other congregational settings. And I don't think that's Of course, it's not intentionally done by church plants. I think they are motivated with the idea of drawing in people who have no connection to an existing congregation and so forth. But um, for all kinds of reasons, I think this is the more common refrain and more common than I I think even some church planters will publicly admit, but uh, seems to be the case. In all your research you've done so far, have there been any big surprises for you? Yeah. um, I mean, I think some of the things we've highlighted a little bit of the the definitional challenges or perspectives on numbers has been a surprise. Uh, Some of the 
suspicion across traditions have been a surprise. Um, I think some of these outward focused things, I don't know if it's a surprise, but they've definitely stood up loud and clear of neighborhood involvement. I mean, time and again, as we spoke with church leaders, he said, you know, one of the reasons we're flourishing is because we're actively involved in our neighborhood. And we've been able to provide a compelling narrative to our congregation of how and why we ought to be actively engaged within our neighborhood and community, uh, almost embracing that parish model and mentality where we encourage people to live within our community, to take a, a vested interest in the physical neighborhood around the church. Uh, I mean, I just could go on and on of different stories of churches who have spoken about that uh, as a real key piece to their uh, flourishing. So I, I would say that's been one key surprising element. Uh, I think another pertains to uh, maybe the combination between discipleship and structures and processes. Uh, Discipleship is a key component to congregational life sustaining itself over the long term. And I think congregations that have figured this out um, have done so because they have structures and processes to help congregations do that. So just one anecdote, uh, I was in Victoria for the month of May working on another research project with a colleague, and so I visited some other churches in the area while I was visiting and uh, attended one church where um, you walked in, you, you sit down in the pew, and right in front of you there's like three different cards that give you different information about the church, but they are intended to draw you into different layers or levels of involvement within that church. So one Sunday night a month, you can come and join anyone else who's new to the church just to meet some of the pastoral staff, get some free food, meet some other people, etc. And then there's another card that uh, gives you an invitation to plug into these different, uh, I'm not sure it's volunteer opportunities or small groups or whatever it is, but they had specific structures and processes in place to draw people into further levels of involvement and engagement, uh, but also to bring people along a discipleship path. And I would say that um, it was, I would say, invaluable for some congregations to really embody a discipleship culture in and through their structures and processes, whereas other congregations, uh, who I would say are flourishing in other ways, would say, you know, we haven't really figured out this discipleship piece yet, in part because they haven't articulated what discipleship is, what it looks like, and how you walk people along a discipleship process, depending on where one is in their own discipleship journey. So those are probably a couple of things that that stand out off the top of my head. When you uh, were listing um, sort of characteristics of flourishing congregations at the beginning, uh, you mentioned partnerships with other organizations. Can you uh, go into that a bit more? Yeah, there's different layers of partnerships. Uh, The closest safe to home kind of partnership uh, are with other churches within one's denomination. And then you move outward from there with uh, congregations from other traditions and denominations to uh, partnering with uh, other religious traditions altogether outside of Christianity. And then partnering with Uh, secular organizations or uh, different organizations and responding to a variety of needs within the immediate community, whether it's working with um, single mothers, uh, with um, those who are homeless, to those who live in poverty and so forth, and partner with different social service agencies. And so congregations have spoken of one of the traits of flourishing is that they don't exist just for themselves. 
but they exist for the betterment of others. And an awareness that no congregation can be all things to all people. And therefore, let's find other congregations or other religious traditions or other agencies who are more capably suited to respond to a particular need. And let's partner with them. And together, we can collectively make a more positive impact in a variety of, of areas. Yeah, that well, that sounds really healthy and actually pretty strategic, too. Yeah, it is. And it depends upon leadership, as we were talking about earlier. Like, if you don't have a leader who thinks about and values partnerships, then it's unlikely that congregations will seek such things out. So you need leaders who think that way, who have the uh, capacities and skill sets to uh, broker those partnerships and to see that as invaluable. And I, I would say we've seen that, particularly within mainline Protestant traditions, these seem to be front and center in ways that other groups either are not as passionate about for a variety of reasons, don't necessarily have the skill set for that, um, or frankly, are, are perhaps leery or skeptical of what other groups and other traditions have to offer. So those things are important pieces in the mix. I think you have one of the best jobs in Canada. <laughs> I agree. It is, <laughs> it is wonderful. Well, so tell us what's next and also um, how people can find out more. Yeah, uh, two things are on the horizon for us. Uh, one, uh, we are approaching the second phase of a large national congregational survey. Uh, so we are surveying congregational leaders as well as attenders uh, across the country, churches of all size. You don't need to be flourishing, however defined, to be part of that. And so we're inviting any church uh, to be part of that. And uh, so you can learn more about that from our website, uh, flourishingcongregations.org. Uh, and there there's information you can reach out to our, our institute to, to plug into that. And the other thing upcoming is uh, we're hosting a national event on Monday, November 26th here at Ambrose in Calgary. And one of the things we're very committed to as an institute is not just gathering data for the sake of gathering data and hanging out with other academics as much as we enjoy that, but we really want to share the data and we want to share it in a way that has uh, practical implications and resonance with church leaders across the country. So we're going to host church leaders, Catholic, mainline, conservative, Protestant leaders uh, here in Calgary. Uh, and we have a great lineup of uh, speakers and presenters from uh, across those traditions who are going to share different insights from their own experiences. Uh, we're going to share a bit from uh, our national survey of some of the things that we're learning and finding. So those are a couple upcoming things. And our, our website is probably one of the best ways to uh, plug in. We uh, provide a, every other week, we provide a newsletter whereby we uh, include a blog from a church leader or from an academic who's studying churches uh, on some of the things that we're learning. Uh, we provide resources of, here's a book we just read, and we think church leaders would benefit from that. Uh, so you can sign up for those on our website, and then we're on social media, Twitter and Facebook and, and so forth. Beautiful. Thank you, Joel, so much. Thanks, Karen. Great to uh, have a conversation on these things. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To listen to more and to subscribe to Faith Today, Canada's Christian magazine, please visit www.theefc.ca forward slash faith today.